everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film. Joining me like always is Steven Schleicher. Hello. And joining us like most of the time, Rodrigo Lopez. Hey man. Hey. So, we're jumping back to the summer of 69 again yeah. this week. We watched, um, oh god, what did we watch last week? Oh, last week we watched The Wild Bunch. We watched Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. And this week we're trading horses for motorcycles yeah. as we watch uh, the Tom Hoffman, Peter Fonda starring movie Easy Rider. You mean Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper movie? Did I get that? Did I get that wrong? Mm. Yeah. Really nailed those last names. Yeah, directed by Dennis Hopper, produced by Peter Fonda, written by Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Terry Southern. Although uh, Terry Southern would go and say, ah, you know, I don't know so much about Dennis Hopper and Fonda getting all the credit that they got on this. Yeah, that was the weird thing I read about it. Some, they were like, uh, he did nothing. He gave us a title. And then he was like, I wrote most of it. It was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, So this is a, a, a movie that I think I was first introduced to. This is the first time I've watched it, mm-hmm. but I believe the first time I'd ever heard of the movie or had it, anyone discuss it to me was in your editing, editing class. class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because it's I always everyone's like, easy writer. I go, yeah, the thing where they like mash the editing board or something <laughs> yeah, so they yeah. could do transitions between scenes. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was very interested to uh, kind of watch this movie for the first time. And and boy, what an experience this movie was! Yeah, what did you think? Give it first of all, give us a rundown of the story. <laughs> okay, and shouldn't then, take long. And then, um, then I want to get your reaction to it. Okay, you can pretty much do this story in like five seconds. Okay, go for Guys it. Guys sell cocaine. They bank a bunch of money. They're gonna retire in Florida. Mm-hmm. Bad stuff happens along the way. Rock music plays over them, driving motorcycles across the country. Uh, they die. Okay, there's some stuff I missed, but really, it was like I watched. So the, the, the drug selling thing happens right at the right. beginning of the movie, right? right? It happens five minutes. We're out of that. They're on their motorcycles going across the country. And then it's like 40 minutes of them riding their motorcycles across the country with some interstitial stuff in between. But it would be like, hey, we're at this hippie commune for a good 10 minutes. And then we're going to ride and we're going to play a song. We're going to ride our motorcycles mm-hmm. some more. Um, so that was an interesting dynamic that I didn't see coming in this film because everyone's like, oh, easy rider is this really wackadoo movie about drugs in the 60s and these guys riding motorcycles. And it's just weird and weird and crazy. And I was like, when are we getting to the weird? Because I know we're doing this thing for our scene transitions, but this is pretty straightforward. And and then you get to New Orleans and things Mm -hmm. get a little wackadoo. I told you, that when you get to the part wondering what drugs they were on, (laughs) they were on all of the drugs. All of the drugs. In that uh, New Orleans uh, bit. Yeah. Rodrigo, had you watched this movie before? I I hadn't. Oh, okay. This, this is the first time I'd seen Easy Rider. So, was your kind of your overall impression of the first half of the movie kind of what I'd explained? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I kind of maybe expected that from what I had a what I had heard and b this moment in film. Like I, when we go through the first long motorcycle montage, I'm like. I bet this isn't the only one. <laughs> you know, it's just like them, like riding their motorcycles, well, so and cutting to like countryside, and then like, oh, they're kind of joking around while they're riding. So part of this is um, Peter Fonda was, I guess, doing motorcycle movies at this time, right? He was known for doing motorcycle films, and he had committed to doing. I think this one was his uh, final motorcycle film that he had to do for the studio. Okay, and so he's like, okay, here's what I want to do, and they went out and did Easy Rider, and of course. I was going to ask you, Zach, which version of the film did you watch? Because apparently the first 
the first um, version of the film is like four and a half or five hours long. <laughs> I did not watch that. And they cut it down to an hour and a half. And most of the footage that is miss the most of the footage that is missing that was taken out is gone forever. Like there's about an hour worth of stuff of them in uh, Southern California as uh, stunt performers in a circus, and they're being uh, ripped off by the man, and so mm-hmm. that's why they start selling the drugs. And then there's uh, sequences of them trying to get out of California, running into biker gangs, all sorts of different things that are going on before we get to, you know, that's in the first five minutes. That's expanded to an hour in the uh, quote unquote original cut of of the film. That was also something I read. It didn't go into the detail Mm -hmm. like you just explained of what was missing. But they did say, you know, Fonda started cutting this movie. It was like three hours long at first. And then they're like, they ripped out. All of the backstory. Yeah. Like, we don't need backstory for this. What we're trying to get across to this thing, which I thought was an interesting uh, choice, because you are kind of wondering, why are they leaving all this sweet drug money behind? And, like, what are they doing besides, like, we're going to Florida? Um, I th- I think it, it plays into this um, kind of off-kilter nature of the film to not give you all of that story and just kind of let you experience them driving across the country. But it's definitely something that would not be allowed today. They'd be like, okay, all those scenes with those dudes riding the bikes, you got to lose those. We got we to know what these guys' names are. Where are they from? Well, but let me ask you, because I think that when you examine this film, their backstory means nothing, right? Everything you need to know about these guys is their drug deal and the fact that they have lots and lots of money. Mm-hmm. And now they're getting out of town. They're going to go and retire and lead the easy life, mm. which and this is the weird part when you start examining this movie. The easy life is what this movie's about, right, is is trying to achieve this American dream of retiring in Florida and having all the money that you need. But in the process it's wrapped up in this uh, counterculture experience where you're exploring all of these different um, lifestyles that are going on in the world at the time, going on in the United States at the time, Mm -hmm. and how they clash with one another. And we see this in this movie. And in fact, uh, this is probably like, I don't know, the fourth time that I've watched the movie uh, for prepping for Zach on film. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly struck me that Peter Fonda actually is a representation of America yeah. in this movie. I mean, he is, oh. I mean, he's got an American flag helmet. Mm-hmm. He's got an American flag on his jacket. He's riding a, a motorcycle that's got America red, white, and blue all over it. Well, I think even in uh, one of Roger Ebert's reviews of this film, he did like four, he only refers to Fonda's character as Captain America. Well, and that's, I mean, yeah. we don't know yeah. that his name's Wyatt. I mean, I don't think they mention his Not name really. Wyatt. Um, uh, Dennis Hopper's character, Billy, introduces the two as, this is Captain America and I'm Billy. Yeah. And I think that is in reference to their stunt work that was cut out of the film uh, earlier on. Yeah, he does but, refer to him as Wyatt possibly once, just like yeah. he just calls his name. And I think, like, seriously, it's like once in the movie he calls him Wyatt. And if, and if we look at Peter Fonda as a representation of America, mm-hmm. we get to see this clash of cultures through, quote unquote, America's eyes, right? We get to see um, the hippie commune, right? We get to see what the hippies are all about. And what, what are they doing? Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. Peter Fonda doesn't know. America doesn't know. And he kind of doesn't care. And he doesn't really care. He's like, fine, they can do whatever they want. I mean, he goes and he meets a very... A strict Catholic uh, family with lots of kids. We're living on a farm. And America says, 
you know what? You're doing good for yourself. You know, good. You should be proud of what you have. Good for you. Counterculture, or the, uh, the commune people, do whatever you want to do, man. It's totally cool, right? Um, they get to, um, uh, they get to uh, Louisiana mm-hmm. and they start running into bigotry and hatred and just, you know, this is what the Deep South is like. And this is what America is, is what Peter Fonda is, is thinking throughout the entire movie. This is what America is. And then a friend of theirs is killed, right? Um, by these, by these rednecks. In fact, these two guys are killed by hatred. Uh, America is destroyed by hatred. There's a great line in this movie that I really had to think about. It's after they go to the Louisiana and they have their big drug induced trip and they're really, really thinking about, um, you know, what, what their lives are. And Dennis Hopper is like, Hey man, we're living the dream. We're going to Florida. We got all of this money. We're going to retire rich. We can do whatever we want. And America says, after viewing everything that he has seen, no, we ruined it. Or we wasted it or whatever. The, that We blew it. You know, he's saying America, it. we as a culture have blown these fantastic opportunities from everything that I've seen. And so that just hit me upside the head today. It's like, holy crap, that's what that line, that's what he's referring to in this, is this is America in 1969. Again, we talked about this uh, the last time. America is just going through this whole turmoil of stuff and literally tearing itself apart. And here's a film that I don't want to say is a morality play because that would make this a conservative film and not a and not this this wild, crazy film that it is. But it's basically saying, hey, look at all these people and how they're acting and why are we acting this way and why are we making such a big deal out of whose hair is this long? Why are we why are we killing people? Why are we uh, why are we shunning people that are that are living a different lifestyle? Why are we doing any of this stuff? We blew it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the ultimate message that you get out of Easy Rider is this examination of of America in 1969 through the eyes of someone who represents America. Is that kind of what you took away, Rodrigo, from the we've, uh, or we blew it line that they utter right at the end before they kind of meet their final fate in this film? Uh, yeah, I think that's one way to see it. I think it's also, interestingly, you can see a real uh, bent towards um kind of the the more moralistic type of movie making right it's like these are guys that are mostly portrayed as as your protagonists you're following them you're right there with whatever uh whatever shenanigans they're getting into uh but they die at the end Mm -hmm. and they kind of have this like remorseful moment and it's like it's almost like going back to that uh like the comics code and and the like the uh the, the the real stringent like tv guidelines is like if anybody commits a crime they have to be punished at the end right mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. you can't have criminals that get away with stuff so although i don't think that that's what they were going for they wanted this like tragic ending it's funny that it still fell into line with like that classic right, right. uh that classic like stringent uh uh filmmaking uh, guideline it would, um, and I heard that 
when they were writing it, and I, th- I don't think they ever shot this scene, um, but their original ending for it were the two make it to Florida by a boat and kind of sail off into the sunset, hmm. which um, I think if you, you look at it from your view, Stephen, if, if you know, if you look at Fonda's character as America, mm-hmm. you could you could read that into, um, yeah, you know, we have blown it as America in a lot of areas, um, but we're going to get through it eventually. We're going to rise above it or, 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 or <laughs> I guess in their case, kind of escape it. Um, do you think that would have, I mean, obviously it would have changed the ending and what it kind of meant, but what, what, what would have this movie, you know, uh, its impact would have been if this final two characters hadn't died in such an abrupt, you know, act of hatred, but kind of actually made it to their goal and rode off in the th- sunset. I think, and as we'll see next week, I think it would have ended kind of in the, well, of course, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is not uh, doesn't have a happy ending, um, but there is this moment at the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where their antics throughout the film were kind of romanticized and popularized, mm. which is why Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid has made much, much, much more money than Easy Rider did uh, in in '69. I don't think it would have been as powerful because I I think people who were watching this movie really understood that. Yeah, look, we're just trying to lead the life. We're all trying to be easy rider, right? We're all trying to just relax and and do our thing, but there's always people in the way blocking us. So I think it reinforced with that ending, it reinforced everyone's feelings of the time of, yeah, man. And it doesn't matter who you are in this uh, when you're watching this film. You don't have to be a hippie or an LSD user or a biker or whatever to watch this film and understand that, hey, they represent me. Um I think it would not have been a, I think it would have been a hollow ending if they had had the happy ending because at the time everyone's like, we don't get a happy ending. Look, people are dying in Vietnam. We're not getting yeah. any of this, this good stuff. Uh, so yeah, and, I, th- and I think that ending really reflects what people were, were wanting. And that's one of the things we talked about with the film school generation is they were creating films that reflected what they wanted to see and what audiences their ages wanted to see. Yeah. I think, I think easy writer throughout all of it kind of, has this sense of like these characters trying to escape. And that ending does give you what that generation at that time felt, right? That there was no escape. You can't, there's no big payoff at the end. We've been told that there is. Mm -hmm. This whole time we've been told that, you know, there's the American dream and everybody can achieve it or something. And you just see people being shipped off to die. Mm -hmm. You see, you know, markets crashing and all these things. And there's an entire generation that just feels like they have no power. Here's a movie about these two guys trying to get their power back and they die, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, there's no escape. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I can imagine when you think about what's going on in the studio system at this time, they're very much like, hey, we're making movies for everybody. We're making movies that a young kid can go see and a grandparent can go see. Everybody's going to love all the movies that are coming out from us. And again, if you look at some of the other films that were coming out in this year, uh, Hello, Dolly, Paint Your Wagon, um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, um, a Boy Named Charlie Brown. These are all movies that are like really just vanilla, happy-go-lucky, whatever, you know, movies that come out. But then Mm -hmm. Easy Rider comes out and people are like, what is the studios? are like, oh, this looks like crap, man. We're never going to make any money on this deal. But we've got to fill a hole, so let's send it out in the theaters. And suddenly it just blows up and the, the studios are just like, what is going on? 
why are all these people seeing this movie? And then suddenly they realize, oh, this is what audiences today want to see. Oh, maybe we should start creating movies that cater to specific audiences. And so Easy Rider flips that switch for Hollywood that realizes we can create films that are not specific to everyone, um, not general for everyone, but can be very specific for groups of people. Mm. And they can still be very, very successful. And maybe we should listen to some of these young kids like Dennis Hopper, who looks like a, a, a drugged out hippie. <laughs> well. And maybe they know what they're talking about because now they're making us filthy rich, mm-hmm. which is... Again, when we look at some of the movies that are coming out now, we're looking at some of these movies that are remakes of counterculture movies or examinations of of the times, like The Wild Bunch. And it's the studios trying to recapture and bank on that money again in a modern age. And it's just really, really weird to think that they don't, they don't, they're repeating the same mistakes that they did in 69, just, mm-hmm. you know, 40 years later. Well, and, and the thing is, is that, it, it it just like weirdly never uh it's like movie studios are always doing the same thing right they try to find a formula that works and then they just mm-hmm. milk it mm-hmm. until it stops working mm-hmm. and by the very act of milking it is that it stops working so yeah and then something comes along and it's like lightning in a bottle right mm-hmm. and then they try to repeat it and it never quite works but it it does kind of give people a little bit more opportunity to breathe and express themselves for a little while before things get structured again. Right. So it is interesting to see um, kind of these like weird projects that uh, just kind of like crack a new uh, area open um, and then allow people to kind of like flourish in, in a lot of ways before the, before everything calcifies again for another mm-hmm. five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll be looking at, in a couple of weeks, Midnight Cowboy, which actually made more money than Easy Rider. It's number two on the list of the biggest moneymakers of 69. And that came out before Easy Rider by about two months, I want to say. And, and it's another one that when we get to it, it's really examining, here's the other side of what you think America is in, in that time period. And so I think that this, hey, let's examine this other stuff, mm-hmm. is really good to see in films. And even today, when we look at uh, representation, when we look at LGBT LGBTQT films, uh, when we look at uh, films uh, that um, uh, Steve McQueen puts out, I mean, those are examinations of things that, you know, your normal audience may not want to go and see, but we go out and celebrate them anyway, because we're looking at things and trying to understand things from this different point of view. So I think it's really important that films like Easy Rider can kind of, and Midnight Cowboy can, can pave that way of saying, hey, here's we can celebrate all of this other stuff out there and examine mm-hmm. it and look at it and, and enjoy it. It doesn't have to be cookie cutter factory films that the studios are putting out all the time. Right. Uh, one character that I think m- might be more attachable for a regular film going audience is uh, Jack Nicholson's character of George. Mm-hmm. that gets picked up about halfway through this, mm-hmm. uh, through this movie. And um, he meets uh, Fonda and Hopper in in jail after the two have been booked for parading without a permit, which is the one thing I want to be arrested for in my entire life. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he is recovering uh, from a little alcohol binge in the jail. He's obviously been there for a long time, and he helps these two get out. And he hears that they're wanting to go to Mardi Gras, and George is like, "Well, I've always wanted to go, but I've never paid, made it past the state line." And uh, so he decides to hop on the bike 
with old Fonda and grabs his old uh, high school football helmet and then he starts taking off with him. And he, he seems to be this character that we get to know these two more through. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he tries marijuana for the first time with them, which um, I don't know if it was supposed to come off as a, a, a cheesy, almost don't do drugs kids kind of scene when it started. Cause Fonda's like, here, George, yeah, yeah. try this. Yeah. And George's like, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I've never tried it. Is that marijuana? Mm-hmm. Boy, howdy. How mm-hmm. I can't believe it's this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, he brings an interesting element that um, brings when he's in there, I think gives a different tone to the film. So how, why, why do you think his character was so important to keep into this film? I've got a theory, but I'll let Rodrigo oh, go okay. first. Oh, okay. Um, well, I think that uh, this character is, you know, he's a kind of rural America guy that is not bad. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think he's he's an important character because you don't want to make this movie about trekking across America and, uh, you know, encountering bigotry and... Uh, just kind of uh, bad people and to say, oh, okay, well, city's good, country bad, right? right? Or, you know, north good, south bad. So here's a character who is from the country and he's a good guy, you know, and, and he's a, a, a better guy than these two even. You know, he's just like a guy who wants to go to Mardi Gras. He's got a little bit of a drinking problem, but, you know, nothing that uh, an, an overnight stay at the local uh, sheriffs won't cure. Um, and I think he's kind of like he's a positive person. And he also like fills them in on a lot of the stuff that's happening in the area. Um, I, I think he's basically meant to be to say this is also part of the American experience just because you're from this area doesn't mean you're automatically going to want to shoot somebody uh, as you're driving by them. Mm -hmm. So what's your theory, Stephen? Well, I I agree with Rodrigo in that if you look and see what, what he's wearing, and I don't remember when the Andy Griffith show was running, but remember Otis the Drunk? In that show, slightly, he's always wearing. He's like this, wearing this white, like seersucker suit all the time, which is kind of what we see um, uh, Jack Nicholson's character wearing. Is this white suit all this time, or the um, off-white suit? And so it's almost like, hey, you guys who like this Middle America uh, homespun stuff, here's a guy that represents this. But you know what, Middle America, you've got a lot of problems uh, as well. You've got drinking problems. You claim that, you know, marijuana is bad, but you really, you don't know about it. So you're willing to try things. And then you're also very nervous about things that are strange. And this is why he has this big, long speech about aliens and uh, the conspiracy that, that aliens are living among us. And so he just kind of, he does represent this middle America of conspiracy and fear of things unknown because he's afraid of marijuana, afraid of the, the aliens coming down. It, it just, he seems to be paranoia the representation of things that are afraid of change but you'd go along with it if you can be convinced to do it and america's telling me that um, that marijuana is okay so it must be okay especially because america tells me that drugs are not that marijuana is not addictive he tells me that marijuana doesn't lead to heavier stuff but then he gives me a funny look when i say i don't want to get i'm already addicted to booze meaning that booze is the addiction marijuana isn't 
So it's really kind of this weird, uh, I agree with Rodrigo, in this weird uh, middle America curious paranoia uh, that goes on. And, and, he's not bad, there's but he's also just not really opened up. This element to the character that understands where, um, you know, Wyatt and Billy are are coming from and repre- understands what they represent, that they're not this, um, I don't know, like anarchist counterculture revolution where they're just dudes with long hair that kind of want to get along in the in the same way everyone else does. And he has this, I mean, one of his long, he talks more than any character in the entire film, is um, talking about how people are afraid of them because they're free mm-hmm. and that you can talk about all the freedom all you want in America, but once mm-hmm. you actually start living it, then that's when people start uh, be get, uh, getting afraid of you. And so he has this idea where he's self-aware in that, that he understands that uh, notion of America, but he doesn't live outside of it. He's still, mm-hmm. you know, he still has his hair cut short. He is, uh, you know, he's a lawyer. He works mm-hmm. in the town. He's just kind of just doing the paint by the numbers thing where he grew up. Maybe a little bit different. You know, he was like a lawyer for the ACLU and, yeah. and things like this. And he kind of befriends these two. Um, but he's definitely aware of the system that America is operating on. America, the country, not the character. And, um, but still operating inside of it because that's the way, and he's probably expected to live, especially mm-hmm. if he's from the Midwest. Well, and, and too, because he's telling the police that um, keep him in jail, or hey, don't tell my tell my parents about this, right? Because my dad, who must be big to do guy, should know about any of this stuff. Because mm-hmm. I don't want people knowing that I'm a troublemaker or anything like that. So you're right; he is trying to keep up appearances. But but then you know he is the first character to die. Also, he dies. Um, in a more personal way, really, than our final two characters die who, I mean, they get gunned down while they're just driving by the, the highway. The people who end up killing George are these guys they saw in a cafe, you know, mm-hmm. a few miles da- back down the road that they stopped in and didn't, uh, weren't able to get any food because, you know, everyone is suspicious of what they look like and they're calling them all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he gets beaten to death ever to survive, but he, you know, he is the first casualty of this type of thing. So in the larger scope of what this picture is trying to say, um, is it just saying like even people that are associated with this are going to feel a hate or what's kind of the message that Easy Rider is sending here? uh, Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's always this collateral damage, right, to to hatred. It's um, even if you direct your hatred up at a particular group, we all pay the price, Mm -hmm. right? So... You know, George is really the most pure character in this piece, uh, you know, that we spend any time with. And he dies because he just gets associated with these people. Um, And they're not necessarily terrible guys, although they are probably, uh, you know, obviously by by their own actions, like cocaine dealers. (laughs) But but, selling to Phil Spector, nonetheless. Yeah, I know. Uh, God freaking Phil Spector being in this movie <laughs> like that forget the LSD scene that was like <laughs> the biggest trip in this movie seeing Phil Spector um, but yeah it's it's this idea that uh, when we are violent and uh, unaccepting we all pay the price I right. think right so I think this movie and you know it's the first time I've ever experienced it was talking about an editing class um and this movie came out, oh, geez, a few months after Bonnie and Clyde. It's after 
that kind of the French wave stuff has started mm-hmm. over across yeah. the seas and starting to migrate into American film. Um, and you can kind of see that in the editing sequence, which I don't feel like they really played up as much as it is almost made out to be. There's only a few scenes where they're doing the back and forth cuts and stuff. Right. So I, it, um, from, from a stylistically put together way of this film, I don't know if it really pushed it as much as it was probably taking its influence from. So one of the things is the editors realized that that was a gimmick that they were using. Okay. And they realized that if they're going to use it, we have to use it at the right time, right? So the first time we see that edit happen, Peter Fonda is looking at his watch, throws it on the ground, and we're cutting back and forth really quick between the watch on the ground Mm -hmm. and them driving off in their motorcycle. Literally things that are happening at the same time, right? Next time we see it, we're seeing a flash between late afternoon and evening, right? So there's a bigger time Mm -hmm. gap that happens. And then even later, there's an even bigger time gap, and I think they use it four times, maybe three times. But the last time we see it, Peter Fonda has a flash to his own death or the audience is given yeah. this preview mm-hmm. of his upcoming death. And so we get an even bigger jump in the flash forward flashback element. So I think that there is a deliberate reason why they're doing that in there to give the audiences a little bit more understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also using that sparingly so it doesn't grow tiring because each time you do it, it's sending a message to the audience. So mm-hmm. if you're going to use a gimmick, don't overuse it. And I think they did that right here. I mean, Yes, it did seem odd at times when it did happen, but then when you think back on what was going on between those flash back, flash forward, um, it makes a lot more sense that that perception of seeing ahead and seeing down the road right. is is more important for America to to know, if so, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think they used it, it well already go? Do you think they could have done more to push that element of the film? Because it's definitely not... You know, when you when you think of like John Luke Goddard's Breathless and they're cutting as they're right. driving, which was the kind of the big thing. They don't really do much with their driving sequence. It's pretty much a by the numbers, you know, drive down the road mm-hmm. type thing besides transitions, really. Um, so stylistically, I, I I don't know. I, I guess I had maybe played this film up too much in my head. And I guess we're not even getting to the LSD stuff because that's just you right. know, just craziness. Right. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it was it was pretty straightforward. Um, do, you, do you think that helped the film? you think it kind of pushed it a different di- direction? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I think there's a blankness to this film. I think there is, aside from those like sharp, like re like returning cuts, mm-hmm. um, it's all pretty straightforward. You get very little information about the characters, and it's just filled with like wide, long expanses of like just scenery or these characters just kind of hanging out. Um, I think that this movie, you know, made the correct decision. They were like, well, do we keep all the story or do we keep all the, uh, like shots of them riding around their motorcycles? And the reason why that was the the right decision to keep that is because, um, the movie allows you to fill in whatever you want. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, everybody kind of relates to one of these two characters um, in some way, especially Peter Fonda, because he says very little. Mm-hmm. They they have like yeah. almost no lines. It's like, you can just put whatever you want in his head and he's not really going to do anything to contradict it. Right. Um, again, if so it, yeah, again, yeah, both, if you're looking at it from the America perspective, that's you're, he's, he's the observer. Both from the uh, formal aspect and the the story aspects, like this movie leaves a lot open for you to fill in, and that's 
uh, I think that's why this movie was successful. Uh, partially that, and 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 really uh, representing the counterculture in a, in an even way, mm -hmm. if not necessarily a positive way, then at least a non-judgmental way, I would say. Um, and then letting you kind of make a decision based on a character that you know maybe smiles a couple times in the movie and once mm -hmm. time says like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Right. Um, the music was a big part of Easy Rider. And I was surprised that this is actually one of the first films, not the first film, one of the early films that didn't have its original score, but was just dropping in, you know, popular music of the time, um, you know, some Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix mm -hmm. um, bands of that time. And I was really, I mean, that was a, a big part of, you know, them driving across the country is all this mm -hmm. music playing on top of it, uh, um, which, you know, is kind of the quintessential uh, road trip thing of music playing in the background all the time. Um, but mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was interested that this actually kind of got, it was one of its main kicks in the film industry from Easy Rider. The uh, budget for this movie, just for the film, uh, $360,000, yeah. right? Uh, the budget for the music licensing, <laughs> $1 million. <laughs> so the, the, to license all of that music for this film, which I think is important because again, it's also music that represents the culture. Yeah. Uh, cost three times the amount of the film itself, which is great. Yeah, it's it's just it's like without this, you know, Quentin Tarantino might have actually had to score like any one of his films instead mm -hmm. of just taking all the music in his head and mm -hmm. dropping it on there mm -hmm. or anything that comes out, you know, like Suicide Squad. And then right, none right. of those movies might have. Yeah, you know, maybe taken not. That I, same, I'm, same I was thing. trying to think of if there are other movies that that did this and at. The only one that came to mind was American Graffiti, mm -hmm. but that came out in 73. This came out in 69. You're right. Uh, Martin Scorsese, when he was doing uh, Goodfellas, uh, used a lot of music at the time. Um, but, you know, that movie's much later. This may be something that that did that first or did it probably yeah. best. I mean, there are always other movies out there where it's like um, you're watching some detective movie and they go to a ballroom and... Benny Goodman is on stage playing. You've got a whole music yeah. number right, there, right. but to That's actually different. have your whole musical soundtrack wrapped up this way is is really maybe one of the first times. Um, you know, and I was watching this, and I was thinking, especially when you get into New Orleans, and they go to this, you know, this whorehouse that mm -hmm. Nicholson's character had recommended. And, you know, they're with these girls and eventually like, hey, it's time to do that acid the commune gave mm -hmm, us. So mm -hmm. Let's go. And, you know, first off, I go, let's, let's make a rule, everyone listening. No one do acid in a cemetery. Yeah, it's that's just like the worst, the worst place, place to, do, to it. do it, right? Yeah, it's just the weirdest. And, like, I think, you know, I like the look of, you know, like Louisiana, Florida-type cemeteries where all the things have to be above the ground. Yeah, it's like a different, flooding, yeah, it's yeah. a different look to a cemetery mm -hmm. than anything you see out here. Um, but it definitely adds a little bit more of a creep factor to it. So let's never do acid in a cemetery. Let's all just agree because that obviously did not work well for anyone in this film. And the biggest problem was when he was given the acid, he was told, do it with the right people. Yeah. And if you're doing acid or mushrooms or anything like that, you have to have someone there as your guide. You like and a, a drug stripper. Something like that. Yes. And they didn't have this. It's like, <laughs> hey, we're drunk. Uh, we just met you like a 30 minutes ago at the whorehouse or we've been up all night. I think they were up all night. Let's, let's all do acid together and no one knows what's going on. And so, yeah, it just leads to this total breakdown of their group where they're just totally freaking out uh, over over everything. 
you know, it was so strange because, you know, leading into this, they're, you know, at this house that has like all of this uh, religious iconography all over the place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Fonda's character seems to be, you know, kind of mulling all of that over in his mind. And that's when you get the flash forward real quick to his burning motorcycle in the end. And and then, you know, when he's on this trip, he, I think he's like in the arms of Mary or yeah, someone. It's, yeah, some statue. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. And so it seemed like they were really playing heavily into that religious aspect during this part of the film. And, you know, what does that say about Fonda's character, Rodrigo, that that's kind of what he gravitated toward during this portion of the film? It's uh, nothing. It's nothing, nothing because <laughs> it's just like, oh, here's a, here's a guy who has a complicated... Uh, relationship with religion is like mm-hmm. insert your own thing here you know i mean yeah. it, it really is like it it really allows you to say like oh he's like me he wants to be religious but he feels that the thing like pushes him away or like oh he's like me like secretly he's religious but you know he has friends who aren't so he has to keep <laughs> it quiet like whatever you want mm-hmm. um you, you kind of feel the same way steven you think there's anything more to that in that scene, I mean, it's it's all so chaotic yeah. that it's almost hard to pick out any really through line of that entire you know ten minute sequence. Yeah, I of think the film. you're just being you're just being inundated by everything, and mm-hmm. I don't think you're supposed to have to come away with really anything in that except maybe here's your last wild, crazy bacchanal or whatever mm-hmm. before before the end times happen. So just go for it, just go crazy. Yeah, you know, it was during that time. Yeah, if it was made today, Prince's. Uh, uh, what is it? Nineteen ninety nine would be playing. <laughs> it was uh, during that time when I was watching it. You know, I was I, when I started this. I was surprised it was a relatively short film. You know, hour forty minutes, not you know, drastically yeah. long by any really yeah. measure of time during film. Um, and it was during that time, especially that sequence, and kind of just reflecting on it was a very sparse film. There's not a whole lot happening through it. That I thought, you know, I think maybe this is if you're going to do something weird. I think you should you should put a time limit on it. You get like an hour forty minutes if you're gonna make something just kind of off the wall, not your standard you know traditional story structure. If you're gonna do weird things with uh, your cinematography or editing or your special effects, if you're really gonna throw something out there that people aren't regularly going to the film, uh, the theater, you know, week in week out, uh, put a put a put a nice cap on your on your time there and make you make sure you can hit it because I think. When you, especially when you get into, you know, like Terrence Malick's films or anything mm-hmm. that's kind of this ethereal uh, kind of notion, you push like two, two and a half hours. People are like, okay, we got to get some form of a story that we can follow along for this time. Um, so I, you know, I think that was one of the good things they did, cutting it down to, you know, taking two hours out of that I, original I, cut. Part of me wants to though just see what that fabled five-hour cut of this <laughs> film is. Because you like torturing yourself and sitting no, in front because, of TV that long. Because so this this is a this movie is is a performance, right? And, but it's almost like a stage performance where, hey, some people are going to come out and play some music for you, bomb, 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 right? And now someone's going to come out and say the family and give you this long dissertation on what the family unit is supposed to be. Mm. Then some more music, bomb, 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 bomb. And then it's going to be the hippie commune. What is it? What is it about? Bah, 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 bah. And then racism, mm-hmm. bigotry, hatred. And so it's like people, and that's what it's what it is. It's 
It's little stories telling you, here's what's going on, interrupted by these musical moments that you can kind of wake up and, and be interested in. I want to see the other, I want to see the other statements that they're making about America that were cut out. Because apparently in one of the sequences early on, they run into a black biker gang uh, as they're trying to get out of California. I want to see what that's all about. Uh, I want to see this whole interaction that, you know, apparently there's a 20-minute chase scene where they're being chased by the cops from Mexico to California. I want to see what that, you know, if there's a statement being made there. Mm -hmm. That's why I kind of want to see that. I want to see those other statements that they're making and see, you know, what America thinks about all of that Mm -hmm. at that time. Because I think it'd be very interesting. But I also don't know if I could sit through a five-hour film <laughs> right, like that. Right, right, I mean, right, we're going right. to get to, and that's why when we wrap up this uh, summer of 69, this something of 69 streak, we're going to be wrapping it up with uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is like three and a half hours long. I'm going to start it this week. You probably ought to. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in the West. It is, I want to see what the tire running time is. It's it's over three hours. 165 minutes. Oh, that's, that's a little under three. Doable. It feels like three hours. Oh, great. Especially in the middle. Um, you know, we just did a little segment that people can listen to, um, if they're a super special major spoilers yeah. person. Mm-hmm. If you're a Patreon member at yeah. patreon.com slash major spoilers, or if you're already a VIP member at, uh, major spoilers.com slash or members.majorspoilers.com, you'll be able to find some bonus commentary. Yeah. Yeah. And so we talked about this list the BBC put out of the top hundred films in the, since the year 2000 mm-hmm. and I haven't seen the original list they did of like top hundred movies in the last hundred years or something. Um, but is easy rider one of those films that's going to stand? I mean, obviously we're still talking about it. Um, what a little over 50 years, so later, about 50 about... years later, is it, is it still one of those films that's going to last and going to be relevant and worth watching again in, in, in another 20 years? Oh, you think, another 20 I think it has years, that yeah. statement that uh, of what kind of it was and its place in America and its place in film history? I think so. I, I think so in 20 years. Now, in 100 years, if they go back and look <laughs> at the top 100 films of the last 200 years, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, because we don't know what's coming up in the next right. 85 years. So, But do you think it's it's one of the top films, um, you know, like in the 20th century, Rodrigo, in that kind of, you know, first half century century of film being created is it one of those that people absolutely need to watch i think it um it kind of gets a lot of it gets a lot of things right but there's a fundamental americanness to it that might be um an issue for non-Americans because they won't mm-hmm. necessarily know what's mm-hmm. what exactly is going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a fundamental sixties to it that is uh, might be an issue for people that didn't know what exactly was happening at the time, or you know don't don't really have a, an in to that. Um, but I think, like I said, this is a this is a movie that weirdly uh, executes is uh, its negative space really well, gives you very little and allows you to like really fill in the blanks. Um, so and and remains entertaining, even though it uh, unless you really hate uh, shots of like the the American countryside um, and bridges. So uh, you know, I I think that it could stand the test of time especially because some of the themes uh in the film remain relevant 
Some of them have come back around and become relevant again. And some other ones that are not that that are just sailing right past our heads right now may again become relevant in the next ten or twenty years. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So this was a you know uh, I was finally I was glad that I finally got to watch Easy Rider. I think it's definitely did you a, like it? Yeah, I really did. I really did enjoy it. I thought um, you know it. I think it hit a lot of interesting notes throughout the film. And I, you know, I think if you have a main character that's not going to talk very much, I think they have to at least be doing something interesting. And I think Easy Rider pulled that off well for the most time. I think on some level it was a little too over in what it was trying to say, especially when he blows his tire at the beginning, and you have this shot of like we have our motorcycle on the back and we are changing its tire. And this is a farmer. He is pounding a horseshoe onto a horse. And we're going to put them right, in the same right. frame so you can juxtapose where America is going and where it has been. I think like some stuff like that was just like sure. a little too much. But also, but also not only is it saying here's how far we've come from horse to m- motorcycle. Yeah. But it's also showing the appreciation of something that is essentially a one-man vehicle. Right. Mm. Because a horse, because you see the, the, the farmer is like, that's some sweet ride you got there. He's mm. really appreciating the fact that they have this. He's putting a new shoe on the horse because if you're going to ride your horse, you want it to, to be have a shoe on it. So there's this kind of also, hey, there's also some oneness between mm. us. Yeah, right? that's good. It, it is like this. Um, you know, the motorcycle, I think probably more than any vehicle that we have right now is this symbol of. Like freedom. freedom. Yeah. I mean, it's like it used to be like a bike or mm-hmm. it used to be just a car in general, but now it's the idea of a motorcycle is this freedom. Well, and we that could do a, a long time We ago. could do a whole series on motorcycles in cinema because <laughs> if you go back and look at um, Marlon Brando in um, what was the movie in 1950s where he's part of the motorcycle gang, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of the same the same way. This motorcycle represents something um, that's different, something that's not that doesn't conform to what society expects and certainly mm-hmm. Mar- Marlon Brando's character and I'd have to go and look at it slips on my mind at the moment is also that same way uh, outcasts mm-hmm. outsiders uh, from society so did you ultimately enjoy this film Rodrigo I did I, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to um, I, I think I'm like uh, you know the wild bunch is a long movie and there were boring stretches during it mm-hmm. Um so I was going in expecting that to happen, and weirdly, it didn't. Like it's this movie has some long stretches of panorama, you know, and 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 riding around and everything, but it never really overstays its welcome. Right around the time when you're like, okay, this has gone on for too long, it's like back back to a vignette of the adventure. The only thing that I felt went a little long was the tripping scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And really, that just went a little long. So yeah, I I, I would I surprisingly found myself weirdly enjoying this movie. Yeah, uh, the Brando movie that I'm thinking of is The Wild One from 1953. Two rival motorcycle gangs terrorize a small town after one of their leaders is thrown in jail. Oh no! So uh, I think uh, 1969 has kind of treated us uh, fairly well so far, Stephen. Yeah, What's I, it got up next I for think us? So I mean, when we look at uh, films of the 1960s, I think we're going to flip flop that with. Um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. All right. Uh, another pair uh, do. In fact, the three movies that we're watching right now, Easy Rider, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Midnight Cowboy, um, are all movies about two people finding each other or coming together in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Easy Rider is and, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid really 
um, complement one another in that they're so far apart in views of how filmmaking can be made. Mm -hmm. So I want to I want to see that uh, next just to kind of compare them side by side. And then uh, we'll follow that up with Midnight Cowboy, um, the only X rated film ever to receive an Oscar. And then we'll wrap up the something of 69 with Once Upon a Time in the West, which which features Henry Fonda. The father of Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda's yeah, daddy. Peter Fonda's daddy. Yeah. All right, so that's going to do it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you enjoy watching Easy Rider so you can kind of follow along with our discussion. Head over to Majorspoilers.com where you can find this podcast posting page and then give all of your thoughts on Easy Rider that you've had after watching it or just anything that we've discussed in there. Keep the conversation going in the comments over there. While you're at Major Spoilers, enjoy all of the great content, comic book, more podcasts than you can handle, but you should probably... Listen to them all because you'll yes. love each and every one of them. Uh, while you're there, click on the Amazon.com link where you can do all of your good Amazon shopping. Buy a book, buy a movie, buy a pencil. I'm saying I need to buy a new pencil. Um, uh, it's not going to cost you any extra when you do that, but a little bit will come back to major spoilers. So uh, you can keep all these great, good podcasts coming right into your ears. Uh, Steven, there's also a new Patreon that people should know about. Patreon.com slash Major Spoilers. If you found some value in this show, please show your appreciation by going to Patreon.com slash Major Spoilers. Uh, every little bit helps, uh, and you can contribute as little or as much as you want. Uh, but uh, like I said, everything goes back right into the podcasts and the website and ensures that you're able to get uh, good entertainment each and every day. All right, so next week we're talking Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That'll be up next week on Zach on Film. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.